0: Father, we thank you for this day, this time set apart for worship, this time where we remember your death and your resurrection, where we sit under your teaching, where we meet you at table. Lord, I pray now that you would draw near to every heart, that you would open our ears. You know our condition. You know it so well. And I pray that you would speak and minister words of life into that place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I like waves. I like the beach. I grew up going to the beaches of South Carolina and Georgia and diving into the waves and doing the body surfing and the boogie boarding. But when I was 13, I had a bad experience with waves. I was an exchange student in France, and now as I reflect on how my parents ever let me as a 13-year-old go by myself to France for a month, I'm amazed. But there I was. I was with a host family. They took me um, to the beach, and I thought, yeah, I've, I've done waves before. I've done Atlantic Ocean before, and here we are. And so I went out into the waves to play. And I quickly got overwhelmed. I remember these waves were much larger and they were further out. Um, and I was tossed underneath by the waves and I would come up and tossed underneath and it was hard to get my footing and to get my breath. And if you've ever been in that situation, you're, you kind of start to panic and your energy runs out very quickly and I had a long way to get back to shore and I did, barely, and I was very glad when I got back um, to the shore And I didn't want to go back out in those waves again after that. In our psalm today, we meet a man who's in a bad place. He's buffeted by waves of guilt. To the point where he cries out, my iniquities have gone over my head. He's drowning in his sin and sorrow. He's flailing around in his brokenness. It sapped all of his strength. It is not well with his soul. If somebody doesn't come to his rescue, he will go down to the depths. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 44, which gave us this language to pray when we're in a hard place, but we don't know why doesn't seem to be our fault. We can't make the connection with anything that we've done, and God doesn't seem to be answering us. That was last Sunday. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 38. The pain, the struggle, the intensity is similar to that of 44. Both are psalms of lament, but this time, the psalmist blames himself. It's his fault that he's found himself in these painful circumstances. But even so, we find this example of him still lamenting to God, not just confessing his sins, but actually crying out to God in his brokenness, in his shame, in his guilt, in all the pain that's come about as the result of his sin. You would call this a penitential lament. One of the healthiest things that we can do with our sinful condition and with the pain that it causes us and it causes others is to cry it out to God, to lament it. And so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Psalm 38. And as you're doing that, let me make a few words at the beginning about how we can apply this. It occurs to me that as we do these psalms of lament, especially in summertime, um, you might not be in a bad place. You might be in a good place. You, you might be in an okay place, and you have struggles, but they're, you know, they're more moderate, and, and these psalms, these are dramatic. I mean, these are overly intense, and so I, I think there can be a disconnect sometimes of, yeah, hey, I'm not really there, so how might we still apply them? Well, let me suggest just three quick ideas. Uh, first, you probably know someone who's in a very hard place right now. You, they might not be showing it to you, but there are probably people who are stuck in the muck and mire of life that feel like they're drowning around you. And so you can use these psalms of lament to pray for them and to be empathetic and compassionate and connect with them. Second, you may be in a good place right now, but we all know how quickly a wave can hit us and we find ourselves under the water, something unexpected. So consider these psalms of lament like training. Learn to use them now so that when you're in a desperate place, that you'll be ready, that you'll have this as a tool to cry out to God. And then third, even in your moderate struggles, these can still be very useful. You know how when you buy bleach or other cleaning chemicals, they come in concentrate, and then a lot of times for your use, you're, you're watering it down and you're sort of applying it? Well, if you need it, you have the concentrated version here. But if you need to sort of water it down, and I realize I'm telling you to water down the Word of God, <laughs> but you know what I mean. You can, you can use it, and it really is actually helpful even in less intense circumstances. So to walk through Psalm 38, I want to come back to this imagery of a person totally overwhelmed by waves, almost drowning, coming up and down underneath the waves, much like I was in France. So get that picture in your mind. And now as you imagine that person in their struggle, um, when someone's in that place, they're able to come up briefly to, to take a breath and then maybe another wave will come, and they'll go back down. And when they come up to take a breath, imagine that person crying out, Help! I I need help! What we see in this psalm, there's a a, a repeated cycle of this psalmist coming up for air and crying out to God four times. You can see it in your text. He starts with it, one in the beginning, one in the end, two kind of in the middle. Um, He says, O Lord, or O God, he cries out to God. So four times there's this crying out, this coming up for air, saying, God, help me. And then he goes back down under the water and he describes the condition. He describes what it's like to be drowning in his pain. And so that's how we're going to walk through this psalm. Four pairs of the condition and the crying out. Condition, crying out. The psalmist begins with the crying out, but let me start with the condition that leads to his first crying out. So number one condition. It's pretty straightforward. It is his own sin. And you see that in verses 3 and 4 where he says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. He's overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. And then in verse 5 he adds to this by saying, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. He knows he's made some terrible choices and it's killing him. Now, not all pain is the result of our own sin. Saw that last week, Psalm 44. But in this psalm, the pain is the result of his sin. Sometimes the connection between our sin and our suffering is obvious to us. We don't need any help to see it. Maybe that's how you come in here today. You're you're carrying guilt over something you've done, some decision you've made, um, some thought, thing that came out of your mouth that you said, oh, that was ugly, I shouldn't have said that and you know it, and you know the pain. But other times our sin is very hard to see. Part of our fallen condition is that we're blind to our sin. That's why Jesus gave this very dramatic but extremely helpful um, analogy, parable of the huge two-by-four coming out of our eye, and we're all walking around with it, big blind spot, we're very good at seeing the speck in someone else's eye, but we have these things protruding out of us, major areas of sin, and we don't see it. We're not aware of it. Now, I think a sinful act um, is probably easier to see. If we do something or we speak an unkind word, we can, we can catch that. But what's harder to, to notice in ourselves are these undercurrents of sin, These thoughtful patterns, these um, motivations that we have that really give rise to the actions. And so our selfishness, our fear, our lack of faith, different idols that we have, uh, those are not always easy to spot. But in order to rightly lament our sin and to find the healing that the Father gives us, we we have to be able to confess it. We have to be able to um, admit it to Him. And so we need to cultivate um, hearts that are penitent, hearts that are are ready to confess, ready to see where we've sinned. Taking that that prayer, that great prayer from Psalm 139 where he says, uh, search me and know me see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We want to be seen and known and corrected by our Father. In our um, liturgical worship, in our kind of church calendar, we have seasons for this. Every Sunday we have a corporate confession. Now that's not adequate time to to do justice to what you may need to confess for the week, but it's a weekly reminder. We come before God. We say, we have sinned. We want to be aware of that. And then we have these seasons like Lent, like Advent, where we go through in the church calendar and there's a penitential season where we're inviting God in His loving way to examine us. So that's the first condition of the psalmist. He's this painful awareness of his own sin. It's overwhelming him. But he's able to come up for air and to give his first cry in verse 1, where he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The psalmist is painfully aware of his own sin, and for him that immediately brings to mind God's anger and wrath. He knows God well enough to understand that God's response to sin is wrath, it's anger. God is totally and completely set against sin. That's one way to understand what his wrath is, his completely being against sin. And the psalmist knows it. And so his appeal, his crying out to God is, don't deal with me in an angry way. Don't let your wrath come down heavy upon me. Now, notice he does not say, don't rebuke me. He does not say, don't discipline me. He just says, Lord, don't do it in anger. We are farther along in the salvation story than the psalmist was. And so our understanding of and relationship to God's anger and wrath is different. On the one hand, we know that his character remains the same. He is still absolutely set against sin. Nothing has changed about that. But what has changed is that God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth and he offered his life as a propitiation for sin. Propitiation, fancy word that means a sacrifice which turns away wrath. A sacrifice which turns away wrath. So the wrath of God against sin, very real thing, was directed against Jesus Christ on the cross. And in that sacrifice, God's wrath was satisfied and it was turned away for anyone who would run to Jesus and say, I want Jesus and I want to be in faith and love with Jesus. He is the hiding place. He is redemption. He is salvation. And if we find ourselves in that place in Christ, we are no longer under God's wrath. In fact, it's not just he's like, oh, okay, I'll deal with you now. It's the complete opposite. He's in love with us. He, we're in a place of peace. We have a standing of grace in Him. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. So like the psalmist, we are right to remember that God is resolutely set against sin, including the sin that we still commit after we're Christians. But we have this greater peace, this greater confidence that God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. That no longer is our experience. We can point to the cross and say, in that event, in that place, God's wrath was turned away, and I now can have peace with him. But we still sin, and God is still against sin. But rather than destroying us in his wrath, he is now this loving father who is working out sin from us, who is purifying us from all unrighteousness. And the best text in all of scripture that I know about this is, is Hebrews 12 where he speaks powerfully of the Father's rebuke and discipline. But he describes it not as this wrathful discipline, but as this loving, fatherly correction. Now, it can be very painful at times. It can be severe at times because our sin is severe, and to get it out of us, God's discipline will sometimes be severe, but it's always for our good, friends. It's always in love. It is not punishment. It is not vindictiveness against us, it is training. The writer actually sees that God's discipline is proof that we are legitimate sons and daughters. For what father is there that does not discipline his children, he reflects. And so the discipline is evidence that we are loved, that he's treating us as children. And then he talks about the wonderful result of discipline, something that we all long for. In verse 12, verse 11 of Hebrews 12, he calls it the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Maybe you are in right now, maybe you have been in a season of prolonged trial, and you can sense in the midst of that God is testing you, He is growing your faith, He's showing you your sin, and it's humbling, and it's painful. The writer says that it's, no discipline is pleasant at the time, it's painful. But in time, it brings about this peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I hope that you've had little and big experiences of tasting that at the end of a trial where you say, wow, there is more peace. Wow, there is more. This relationship was tumultuous, but we've broken through to the other side. And now there's greater love for each other and greater compassion, whatever it might look like. So our cry of lament when we're in the midst of the discipline can be, God, help me endure your discipline. Help me to see it as a sign of your love for me. Help me to long for the peaceful fruit of righteousness and to hold on because I know it's coming. That's an honest prayer. That's a good prayer of lament. Another wave comes, and the psalmist is dragged back under the water, and he describes his second condition. This time it's physical and emotional sickness as the result of sin. Physical and emotional sickness as the result of sin. Sin affects every part of us. Affects our bodies, our souls, our emotions, our thoughts. It's very clear as we read through this psalm um, that he's having physical and emotional fallout from his sin. The physical part is very stark. He describes it in several different verses. Verse 3, where he says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of your sin. And then in verse 5, he talks about his wounds stinking and festering. In verse 7, his sides are, are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. We don't know what his illness was, what he was suffering, but it's clearly something physical, some sort of bodily affliction but he's also emotionally sick. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So he's psychologically, emotionally, he is distraught as well. Now, I don't think it's as hard for us to understand how sin affects us emotionally. If, If we have some thing of sin, it often robs us of peace or of joy or whatever. We, we get that part of us. I think it's a little harder for us to make a connection between sin and physical suffering or illness. We're, we're like the direct opposite of the ancient Near Eastern culture. It, back then, they assumed that if you were sick, that you had sinned, that you had somehow offended God or the gods, depending on what their religion was. But we saw last week that that's not always the case. There's not always this direct relationship. Job, in his physical suffering, people suggested, they said, well, clearly it's because you sinned. And he said, no, it's not. And he was right. It was not because he sinned. And then in the New Testament, John 9, the man born blind, they assumed, the disciples assumed, must have been because somebody sinned. Who was it? Him or his parents? Jesus said it was neither neither one. So there's not always this one-to-one correlation. And sometimes a lot of damage is done to people who are physically sick, and they come to the church, they come to Christians for prayer, for encouragement, for healing, and a Christian will will put on them this, this guilt that doesn't even need to be there. It says, well, it's because of your lack of faith that you're not well, or it's because of some sin in your life. And so a lot of damage can be done if we go into this automatic or this we think we know authoritatively, and we can speak that on to someone else. But on the other hand, there is clearly a relationship between sin and sickness let me give you some obvious examples. person who engages in indiscriminate sexual activity with multiple partners is probably going to contract a sexually transmitted disease. A person who is gluttonous, eating and eating and eating and drinking and drinking and drinking is probably going to have adverse health effects. A person who is just steeped in anger and doesn't know how to deal with their anger or a person who is steeped in anxiety and doesn't know how to deal with that, both of those can be sinful. That's going to affect their health. Medical research has shown us that. So there can be a connection. But we need prayer. We need discernment to know what is the connection. We shouldn't jump to conclusions. We certainly shouldn't force that onto someone else, but nor should we deny the possibility because we are holistic creatures, friends. Our emotions, our soul, our spirit, our thoughts, they're all interconnected. And so a sin can very much affect us in lots of different ways, including our body. One of the things that um, sickness can do is really just get our attention, right? It's like a warning system of all of a sudden we're having a physical manifestation. It should make us wonder, hey, what's going on in my soul? And what's going on in, in other parts of my life? And maybe it's not directly sin, but it it can make us pay attention. One commentator talked about how a a successful, strong, healthy person is not going to be as quick to admit and to confess their own guilt. But someone who is brought low by sin in their life, who, who is physically sick as well, will be more ready to admit, hey, I want to do business with God. Is there something going on here? So that's the second condition that's overwhelming him, this physical, this emotional sickness. He comes up for air again. And second time, he cries to the Lord in verse 9. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. This time it's not so much a request for God to do anything. It's just wanting to be heard. It's just laying out his pain before the Lord. He talks about his longing We imagine in this context that he he longs to be physically well, emotionally whole again. And sometimes that's simply what lament is. It's just being heard by God, putting out our longings before him. We're also told that he sighs to the Lord. Another translation might be groaning. And we see the distance between where we are and where we'd like to be. And maybe that's in in righteousness, maybe that's where we are physically, where we'd like to be as well, emotionally. When we see that distance, it can cause us to groan. It can cause us to say, oh, I want so bad to not be here, but to be there, and so we groan. And if we're not careful, that groaning, depending on what we do with it, can turn into a hopelessness. It can turn into a cynicism. It can turn into a, a complaining and a bitterness. But in lament... God says, you can groan, just groan to me. You can sigh, just sigh to me. You can even complain, just bring that to me. And I think the more we go to the Lord with our groaning, the less we do so with others. We complain less. There's a healing that that takes place as we lay our hearts out before the Lord. We're told that He is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So there's this intimacy that can actually develop with the Lord in lament as we lay before him our pain. So friends, don't hold back. Don't keep it all in. Don't miss the opportunity to have the Lord's nearness. He's not near, especially when we're well and happy. He's he's near in this way, the Scripture tells us, when we're brokenhearted and the humility that comes from that. Beginning in verse 11, the psalmist goes back down beneath the waves and he describes a third condition. This time it's about relationships with other human beings. Look at verse 11. He says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Sin and its consequences separate us from other people sin and its consequences put this blockage in our relationships and it can happen in any number of ways sometimes when we're in a a pattern of sin we withdraw from others especially from other christians we withdraw from church because we love the darkness because we want to stay in that pattern of sin and we don't want our deeds to be exposed to the light so that's one way it can happen Other times, it's not that we love the darkness. We might actually hate the darkness, but along with the darkness, we hate ourselves. We're ashamed. We're steeped in our guilt. We feel so bad about ourselves that it's hard to relate to others. We can lack a confidence. We can feel emotionally just messy, and, and we don't know how to deal with others in that. We're not at peace with ourselves, and so it's hard to be at peace with others. So sometimes it's us sometimes it's other people. Our friends and families do actually separate themselves. They take a step back for different reasons. Maybe you're sick and they don't want to catch it. And if you're a a mom of young children, you've had the sick kids and you know that very well, that all of a sudden it's like, quarantine, don't don't nobody touch her for a week or so. You're just holed up by yourself. That's terrible. That's really hard. You feel that separation in relationships. Uh, sometimes if we're really close to a person and, and we're sort of in a caregiving place, that could be physically for someone who's ill, someone who's emotionally, someone who's struggling with a pattern of sin, we just get exhausted by being the caregiver. We're, we're worn out by it. And so we take a step back from that. Other times, um, we, we just don't know how to enter somebody else's pain. And I think when somebody is really sick or somebody has, has lost someone, um, that we don't know what to say and we feel awkward. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to give the cheap answer when someone has lost a spouse or a parent or a child. And and so what do we do? We, We actually hang back because we don't feel comfortable stepping forward. And so sin, sickness, emotional distress can actually create separation from those that we love and those that we need. The psalmist goes on, he also talks about how it makes us vulnerable to attack. So not only are are our close ones, those we trust, separated from us, but now those that seek to take our life, that's how the psalmist describes it in verse 12, now they're, they're coming after us. And if you've read through the psalms, you've seen how frequently they talk about enemies. And I think most of us do not have as many human enemies as David did or as other people in these psalms, but we we have those, and we have experiences where there's somebody in our life who's who's just at us, or opposed to us, or we're in conflict with, and it feels like an enemy, and so we have that. And in those vulnerable times, our guard is down, we can be attacked, and then we also have spiritual enemies. We talked about that at the end of Ephesians. We have this spiritual opposition that's coming for us, and sin and its consequences, again, make us vulnerable, and we can be attacked by that. So that's the third condition, how these relationships are affected, how we can become vulnerable to being attacked. Once again, the psalmist, he comes up for air. And he cries out to God a third time. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And just a bit earlier, he, in verse 13, and 14, he talks about how he doesn't have an answer. He, he can't explain this. He doesn't know how to, to deal with it, but, but God will answer. And he waits for him. There's a bit of hope here because we know that in the midst of pain, in the midst of the isolation, even when we feel vulnerable, we are not alone. Lament is like a lifeline. It's like the Coast Guard helicopter lowering down the basket. We can grab into it and be saved. The psalmist doesn't know how and he doesn't know when, but he knows the Lord will answer and that's why he's crying out. If you go back to what we said about lament, we lament, we cry out to God because we believe he can do something. And in this case, he's saying, I know you will act. I know you will answer. I will wait for you. I think the hardest part of pain of any type is the waiting. If our pain was like ripping a Band-Aid off real quick or a quick shot prick in the doctor's office, we don't like that, but it would be okay. It's the prolonged pain. It's the ongoing consequences of bad decisions at some point in our life that kill us. It's It's the discipline of the God that seems to go on year after year. And we think, when is it gonna let up? We just want it to end. We just want resolution. Sometimes it can get so bad that we're not necessarily contemplating taking our own life, but we sure wish God would. You ever been in that place? Just make it end. Lament becomes this lifeline. It helps us to wait on God. It gives us something to do as we wait, to cry out to Him. And every time we do that, every time we cry out, even if it feels so feeble, we're actually strengthening the muscle of faith. We're strengthening the muscle of hope in us. So we come to our fourth and final pair of condition and crying out. And this one's kind of a summing up. We see the condition in verses 16 and 17. In 16, he talks about his foot slipping. And then at 17, he says, I am ready to fall. This man, this woman, they're at the end of the rope. The crippling guilt of sin, the pain of its physical and emotional consequences, the isolation from family and friends, the vulnerability to attack, he's done. He's hit rock bottom. This is the moment when it's entirely possible that he won't come up for air when he's that overwhelmed and exhausted, this is the moment where it's quite possible he'll just slip under the waves. I don't think all of us in this room have hit rock bottom. But some of you have. Some of you have in a big way. You know what it's like to feel completely destitute. We don't talk about suicide a lot. but Some of you in this room have possibly contemplated that. Maybe some of you in this room have tried it. Or maybe there's someone near and dear to you who did or who has struggled through it. That is a rock bottom. There are other types of rock bottoms, though. There's a rock bottom in a marriage. If you've been married a long time, you've probably experienced maybe a few of those. I don't want to be married anymore. Maybe it's a rock bottom in a career. You don't know how to go forward. You feel like you've wasted your life. Maybe it's a rock bottom in your relationship with God where you think, I've been following you, I've been trying, and I just don't get it. You don't feel like you're there, and you're ready to let go. Maybe you're at rock bottom today. Somehow, by the grace of God, you're here. You're you're listening to this sermon. psalmist doesn't have much left. But he comes up for air one more time, and he cries out to the Lord. And his cry is the most heartfelt and poignant one yet in verses 21 and 22. He just says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. That's the cry of a drowning person. That's the last thing they cry out before they slip beneath the waves. Last week, if you were here, if you've heard the sermon, you recall that the very last word of the psalm gave us some hope and some resolution. In Psalm 44, the last word, it was chesed, this this great Hebrew word for God's unfailing love. I think the same is true of Psalm 38. The very last word of the psalm is salvation. And in Hebrew, this is, this is based on the word for Yeshua, Yeshua, salvation. And not just generic salvation, but he personalizes He said, the Lord, my salvation, that's what he's crying out. He knows that somehow, way, the Lord is salvation from its sin and from all the consequences of sin. And we flip page after page, book after book, and this whole thing continues in the story of God's people. It continues in our lives. And then we come to the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, and this angel comes to this man, and this man has found himself in a very awkward place. He's betrothed to this woman, and this woman has gone and gotten herself pregnant. And he's a good man, and so he's going to divorce her quietly until an angel comes to him. And he says, Joseph, don't do it. And I'll tell you why, because this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he, he says to the man, he gives to the man this, this ability to name his, his child, his, his adopted child in a sense, and, and he says to him, Matthew 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I suppose God could have given any number of names to his eternal son when he was born, when he was incarnated, but he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus in Greek is Yesus, and Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Jesus, Yeshua, is Lord my salvation. Jesus is the reply to this desperate cry for help of Psalm 38, for the desperate cry in your heart, for even the not-so-desperate cry in your heart. Jesus is, Lord, my salvation. He came to deliver us from sin and all its consequences, and they are many And in doing so, it's interesting to walk through Psalm 38 and to see that every condition, every wave coming over the psalmist, Jesus experienced in his life. From right at the beginning, he took into himself the anger and wrath of God, not for his sins but for ours. He was emotionally distraught. He was physically afflicted for our transgressions. And his companions, those who promised to be with him, they stood back. They even denied him in the case of Peter, absent in his time of need. And then people sought to take his life and they did take his life. Persecution at the hands of enemies and he was vulnerable. And then at the very end, Jesus experienced what it was like to be forsaken by God so that anyone and everyone who called on the name of Jesus would never be forsaken by God. Friends, God does not exempt us from the pain of our sin. He does not exempt us from the severity of his fatherly discipline, but he is present in our pain. He will never leave us or forsake us because of Jesus, because of Yeshua, the Lord, my salvation. So what do you do with your sin and the pain that it brings? You bring it to Jesus. You lay out all of it. You're groaning, you're longing, you cry to Him in your illness and your isolation and He will answer you. He has answered you in Jesus and He will do it again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.